I appreciate you guys coming and joining us. My name is Robert Zink. Um, I'm a pastor in Longview, Washington, but I also work with Biblical Ministries Worldwide. Um, so it's my privilege to have these gentlemen up here who have way much, way more knowledge than I do. Um, so we're going to glean from their wisdom today. Um, allow me to open in prayer, and then I will go ahead and just make some quick introductions, and we'll get started right away. So let's pray. Our Father God, we do thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for the work that you're doing around the world, and at this time, Lord, we just pray that you would guide and direct our conversation. May it be honoring and pleasing to you, and Lord, may you convict our hearts and convince us in, in what we need to do for your glory, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you for, for who you are, and we need it all to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to do a couple of quick things and just add some quick rules. Um, just for security, if anything changes, um, I'm going to use first names only and just give you a brief bio, nothing major, and ask that nothing be, as far as pictures, be posted on social media or anything like that. Um, most of these guys, I think, are fine, but I want to be sure <laughs> and protect them. Um, so all of us are part of B&W in some form or another, and I'm sure some of you guys know, especially these first two here. <laughs> um, of course, Paul was the former director of BMW and now still fulfilling a role, and it sounds like he's all over the place. Um, and then Andrew has taken over for him. So we got both direct, former director and current director up here. We have Chris Anderson, who was a pastor in the Georgia area and now has joined as senior vice president at, I, I don't know the last part of that term, but you're senior vice president at BMW. And then we have Josh and Kevin, who were both missionaries overseas, and Josh also acts as area director. So there's a lot of experience up here. Um, some of these guys have had to adapt to world situations, recently being evacuated from countries. So that gives us this wide perspective here. And I'm just going to begin, we kind of have three topics. If we have time, I'll open it up for questions, but we'll see where things go. You have notes if you want to take them. That's completely up to you. I want to begin this discussion just talking about just missionaries in general. And I think it should be no surprise that we live in a nation that's aging. Uh, we have the baby boomer generation who makes up a large chunk of our society and they're getting older. And so what you see is from 2010 to 2020, the percentage of people 65 and plus has gone up about 4%. At the same time, if you look at that 0 to 14, you could even expand that to 0 to 18, and that's decreased by about 2%. Now why is that important? Because it actually relates to our missionaries. Our missionaries are also aging. And what you'll see there, I'll try to get out of your way, what you'll see is that over half of our missionaries are age 50 or older. And if you break that down, 22% are 65 or older of that. Doing some just very informal research, I found that that's typical of most agencies. That's not a BMW stat, that's not an Ethnos or anybody else, that's just a conglomeration. So, looking at these men, the kind of the first question we want to address is, that looks like we can't replace the missionaries we have. Do those age trends concern you? Is there a concern there at all? I think one of the things that kind of distorts stats is that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, people went to the mission field in their 20s, now they're going to their 30s. So. 
you're starting off with an older age demographic. So statistics can sort of be made to say anything. But we, he just whispered a, a, a incredible statistic for us. Yeah. So the, <clears throat> I completely agree, Art. But with 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 this, I mean, there's a concern. It, it is an aging overall. But at BMW, our average age is 37. So we're we're very encouraged about about the uh, the younger people coming into the mission. You know, 27 years ago when I became director, uh, there were people putting off alarm bells and saying, wow, the age of BMW is such and such, and we're about ready to close our doors. Well, 27 years later, we're still we're still going. So to a certain extent, we can get uh, alarmist and, and pessimistic, but, hey, there's still a lot of traction, a lot of... A lot of momentum here in America, so I, I'm not negative about it. I realize it is a different world than maybe it was 30, 40 years ago, and it may be the recruiting may not be what it once was, but we're not ready to close our doors, especially in the IFCA circles. We're, we still believe in missions. I think one of the other uh, things that this statistic speaks to is longevity in ministry, and that's a real testament of mission organizations that have a higher percentage of, of older uh, veteran missionaries that have proven experiencing commitment to their fields. They've endured the rigors of cross-cultural ministry, and uh, that's that's a blessing, and that's something to be celebrated as well. Another story I'd like to bring out: <clears throat> we had a we had a couple um, go to Denmark last year, and we think we we can't confirm this 100, percent but we're not sure of any other mission agency who has a church planting intentionally church planting missionary unit in Denmark, um, and. Uh, their story is incredible. They um, they raised a very significant budget because it's a high cost of living in Denmark um, in six weeks. Um, I've never heard of it. And, and we are seeing an in, a, a speeding up of the support raising process with some of our younger missionaries. And here's there were three things they had. Number one, they had an incredible passion for the lost and shared it in such a way that, you know, I'm a pastor's kid, and I've been in missions my whole life. Um, I, I think I've seen every mission pitch you can possibly imagine. I was like pulling, can I give you money? You know, it was, it was I want in on this. And being able to communicate that, that heart and zeal, and then they were competent, and then they had a very clear-headed vision of, we are going to do three things. We're going to win the loss to Christ. We're going to disciple them, train leaders, and we're going to do it in the context of a healthy gospel-preaching local church in its local context. And they were so clear about that. People were like, yes, please, let's go. So they had kind of, in that sense, the whole package. And I think as mission agencies, it is our job to help the local church with your missionaries, help them communicate the vision God has for them in a way that is very clear-headed and very articulate so that supporting pastors and churches can get on board with that. And Chris was one of our board member for a lot of years. I know you've got something to say to that as far as getting that vision communicated and getting the right missionary out because we only get what you send us in that sense. I have less to say than he thinks I did. <laughs> um, I think I think for uh, churches to get a passion for sending, you know, kind of my, uh, of the guys on this panel, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm not a missionary, but our church in the last four or five years has sent out you know, 10, 12 families to the mission field or church plants or out west. And um, we're trying to define success not just by growing but by sending. And I, I think part of the part of the thing we're talking about with retiring missionaries is 
if we have a missionary retire and then we have to replace him with a young missionary, we're failing somewhere. You know, that, that retiring missionary should be replaced by national leaders that he has trained. Yeah. You know, so the answer isn't always a new American. And that's why I see, you know, um, NTCGS is represented. The most exciting thing I'm, I'm seeing in missions is um, people like, like Paul Holritz who are training mm-hmm. people in the Middle East to reach their own people groups. So we, we can't just think of we need more Americans to replace old Americans. You know, hopefully they're being replaced by a bunch of people they've discipled and trained for ministry. So. I think Chris just captured the heart of BMW with what he just said. And that's what drew us personally to BMW, was seeing that vision for nationals to take it over. So with that said, what trends do you see in terms of raising up missionaries? Okay. Uh, the trends in raising up missionaries are twofold. Um, one, we need a spiritual revival in our local churches across the United States. We need a revival of the gospel. Um, I, I don't think it can be manipulated. Um, and there has to be a, you know, there's an end result to every working of God in the, in the heart of some people is that the gospel goes to the nations. Um, another thing that I would say, and I'd love for Kevin to jump in on this if, if this makes sense to you, um, I feel like the mission, the way we thought about missions in the romantic era of missions is changing, that <clears throat> there is still a need to go to the remote places of the world, but there is possibly even a greater need to go to places with state-of-the-art health care um, and a very high standard of living that are now being redefined as unreached places. So Western Europe, um, the Pacific Northwest, um, the New England states, Canada, Australia, where we're, we're, we're needing to reawaken a gospel church movement. And, um, you know, Kevin, you were ministering in a context, I mean, something like that, and it, maybe you could speak to that, uh, given where your home church is and what you did. In yeah, yeah. Uh, it was serving in Russia, Sakhalin Island. Uh, Russia's roughly 1% evangelical, and that's pretty common for a lot of Europe when you look at those statistics. And so um, there's, as, as you heard um, Dr. Provost speak, there has been a, there's a Baptist Union network that's been around for a long time in Russia. So it's not like they are unreached, but uh, at the same time, very little forward movement has been made. And uh, so there's a need to go to places like that, not just Russia, um, Eastern Europe, and some of these other places, that um, it, it may not sound quite as exciting as going to the unreached people groups, right? But it can be exciting, you know, when the KGB are, are watching you. Uh, <laughs> That's some excitement. I did have to evacuate Russia, so. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, he just, uh, he just came back. How, when was that? Let's see, March? February? Yeah, yeah, March. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were out about nine days after the, the war broke out in uh, Ukraine. It's an I exciting few days, wasn't it? <laughs> well, well, it was, yes, especially when I was talking to you on the phone. And you're like, know where your land borders are. <laughs> we'll help you get out wherever you can. So, yeah. But God took care of us. We're good. Yeah. Would you say 98 to, with 98 to 90% of a population um, is not evangelized or is does not have access to the gospel does that put us in an unreached space and if if it does 
um, the organization, for example, in the United <coughs> Kingdom that would be this closest to the IFCA is called the FIEC, uh, Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. It had a rich history with Martin Lloyd-Jones and been like that. Um, on an average Sunday morning across all of the United Kingdom, that network of churches, of about 600 churches, has 20 to 25,000 people in church on a weekly Sunday. That's collectively in a nation of 65 million people. And then <clears throat> when you narrow it down to people who would share our conviction on biblical baptism, um, church governance, inerrancy of the scripture, um, non-charismatic, um, gospel you know, evangelistic, um, you're shrinking it down to a number of that is frightening, frightening, and and I just think we need to look at Europe completely differently. So, I had a pastor share with me once that Europe is graveyard missions. They had their chance for the gospel and they failed. I understand uh, where that's coming from, but in missions, that grieves my heart to hear. Some nations are so post-Christian, they're pre-Christian, and I think that's the case for much of Europe. That's a great point. How do you prioritize fields then, based on what you're saying here? Can you? Well, the Great Commission doesn't leave any gaps. It says every person everywhere. <laughs> so, to a certain extent, you can throw a dart and you ought to go there. <laughs> so, but obviously, we're wanting to think in terms of places where there is less likelihood that a church or a group would be able to reach them. So, there are still in, as Andrew alluded to it, you know, in Western Europe, unreached people groups. Um, and whole nations are unreached people groups there. And places that we thought, you know, so so really almost the world's our oyster. Yeah. Can we combine that thought? Josh mentioned earlier longevity of missionaries. And that's what you saw in 40s, 50s, 60s. If you go, you go for life. First off, I think I can safely say we see that trend changing a little bit. So people are not on the field as long. They are going later, so, and they're changing fields more frequently. Can you hit more fields with fewer people, if that makes sense? Because they're not staying at the same place for 40 years, they're now hitting three fields, say, in 40 years. Does that make sense? If that was taking place, the, the trends... And statistics are, again, they're hard to get your arms around, but in general, this is just a very general statement, uh, the 50% of missionaries that go out last one term, they don't go back for the second. We kind of joke, and as we, we send people out the first time, and say, you've got one goal for this term, and that's to come back for your second one. <laughs> uh, but we're serious about that, too. Um, so, And then those that come back for the second term, about half of those aren't going to make it to the third term. So there is a huge attrition uh, that is taking place. So that's, that's obviously deeply concerning to us. And for the kind of work, at least, that we're doing, uh, you know, the first four years, eight years, you're still learning the, the language of culture. So your productiveness is really probably ten years into your missionary career. And for you to throw in the towel after a couple of years, we spent a lot of money and really haven't gotten too much ROI. I, there's a need these days really to prioritize. Uh, you go into a situation, I went into Russia, they would ask me, so how long are you going to be here? Because, you know, they think, are you really going to stick around? Is this real? And, I, and I'd say, look, as long as the Lord um, wants me to be here, and that may look like a letter from the, the FSB that will tell me I have 10 days to leave the country, yeah. which I expected to get. I eventually got it after I was already here. 
Um, but what it caused me to do in that context is to prioritize. Now, I went with a wife who's Russian-speaking, native, kids who spoke the language. I could have spent four years learning Russian and at the end of four years been fluent in Russian. Okay? And then when we left, I could say, well, I know Russian. Now, but since I didn't know, <laughs> there was a lot of uncertainty, it caused us to have to say, well, what can we do that's going to make the most immediate impact while still having the long-term planning? Mm -hmm. I didn't stop studying Russian, but I also had to be aware of that because things can change quickly around you. I had to say, well, what can I do that's going to make the most impact? So if I do have to leave after three years, after four years, there's something here that's going that's going to continue. And so on some level, I think that's how missionaries have to think. While still having long-term plans, a long-term desire, a stick-to-itiveness, they'll be there as long as the Lord wants, but yet have to really be thinking, what if? What if I have to go quicker than I want? Are we going to be able to leave something that has a lasting impact? Robert, I think your question is important because <clears throat> everyone, we do see the global attrition rates that Paul mentioned. And then within those attrition rates, you have individual stories of God working with people in unique moments. So we were 19 years overseas, but two of those years we were in the country of Estonia. And so on paper, it looked like we had a two-year stint and then we were gone. What? Why were they only there two years? Well, there's a whole backstory I won't get, go into, but it was a very productive two years. And then God led us to London, England. In those two years, though, there was a man from China who came to the church we were working on. He happened to be the head of um, ZTE Telecom for the entire Scandinavian and Baltic region. His wife was a member of the underground church in China and brought him to church because we had an English-speaking service as well as Russian services and Estonian services. He came to the English service, spoke great English. Um, after a number of months he uh, coming, he went, to, um, he went on a on a New Year's holiday, came back, <clears throat> he walked up to me with a huge smile on his face and handed me a $1,000, uh, an envelope with $1,000 bills, crisp, freshly cleaned, you know, $1,000. Puts it in my hand with this huge smile on his face and he says, kind of a Chinese accent, he says, this is for the God. This is for the God. <laughs> and uh, his wife um, looks, at, looks at us and she says, he is a Christian now. Amen. And but what happened? Well, it turns out he, he, we, God had been working on his heart for months, conviction. They went to Mount Sinai because they went to the Holy Land for their holiday. They climbed Mount Sinai. Uh, I guess you do it really at, at nighttime and you get up there and you see the sunrise. They did that. He said on top of Mount Sinai, he decided that all of it was true. God was real and he wanted to receive Jesus. So he said, the first thing I need to do is I need to go to the church and I need to give some of the money that God has given me back to the church because I'm grateful for what God has done. You know, and this was a very, you know, he's a businessman. This is the first step I need to do. So uh, he was moved on shortly thereafter and we have a long-standing agreement that someday we're going to meet and the only place he will be baptized is the Jordan River, given where his conversion took place. And the only person who will baptize him is me. So um, he had to go back to China. But it, it was that. It, and now they're in China, and they've done incredible ministry, even within the business community. Um, and you don't know, I mean, you see that all through the Gospels, even with Jesus, that on the way, we need to communicate a missionary zeal that you think God sent you there. And God did. 
But maybe the reason he sent you there was to reach the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe the reason you were sent there is to reach the woman at the well. You know, you never know what those scenic byways are going to do and what God's going to do with that effect. So I think the globalized world that we've seen means the net, the gospel grows like yeast. It, it infects and, and blows up in ways we can never imagine. So I think that's a another component part of this, that there are weird exceptions to every story, you know. To build off of that and share a little bit of our story, you know, Paul shared some stats, and when we'd gone to Argentina, we fully went, this is a lifetime change. We made it through that first term. We even made it back to the second term, but halfway through that second term, we made the decision to come home, and it was it was an agonizing decision. And you, you, you wonder about that. You feel like you failed the ministry. You, you, you still have an unfinished ministry there that we still have a heart for. But we always went in there, okay, we do want to see things happen. And we kind of had the same thing Kevin had, which was, and actually the cults actually impact this, specifically Mormons. They didn't want to get us to know us initially anyway, because they figured, you're like the Mormons, you'll be here six months and gone. It took two or three years for them to see, oh, you're actually living with us, you are here. Then they finally started to drop some of their veil and, and, and talk to us. We left after about six years, and that's hard to look back, and yet I can still see how God is using that time. And I think we opened up doors, or God used us to open up doors that weren't open before, that will make it much easier for the next missionaries or our coworkers who are still there. And so in that regard, it's probably not what we would call the most efficient way, but certainly God's working effectively. I think one of the changes that's taken place is my parents' generation who went, they went into missions. Now people are thinking in terms of going on a mission. And there's a difference there in that. So the mission might be, it might be one week, it might be 10 years, it might be a lifetime. Does that change how we approach missions then? I think, I think to some degree it might be like uh, an Aquila and Priscilla who are ministering, they're they're at Rome, and then they're at Corinth, and then they're at Ephesus. Um, You know, on this panel, we have people that changed, you you changed fields. Uh, Josh is considering changing a field because the door might not be open. Uh, Paul Holritz um, was a missionary in Japan, and the Lord did a work, and he got to go back for an anniversary of the church that he helped plant. But now he's ministering in so many different places, training people. Um, when I was in seminary, I read a statement by Augustus Strong, not in his concordance, um, which is amazing. How did he do that without a computer? I don't know. But uh, his systematic theology, there's just a statement that kind of leapt off the page. It says, the test of a man's ministry is not while he's at the church, but after he's left the church. Then you'll know if you made people passively dependent on him or actively dependent on Christ. And I think if missionaries would think that way, they they have an exit strategy. If I'm only here for 10 years, what will I leave? And and the answer needs to be you know nationals that have been kind of equipped and trained. Second uh, Timothy 2, 2, you teach faithful men that can teach others also. And I think the longevity of many missionaries you know is so commendable, but again, for many, they were in a place 30 or 40 years, and they kind of white-knuckled control of the church, and and no nationals were ready to take it over, no churches were planted, and um, if the missionary goes in and sees himself as, as temporary anyway, 
and now I'm trying to get the ministry done through other people. Um, the times where I've seen that, that that's what most excites me about missions right now is, okay, get there, but have an exit strategy. You're training people and then trusting people and, and then get out of the way and, and do it somewhere else. Um, I think it's a healthy thing when that's happening. I think an exit strategy is one of the, the real advances in, uh, of emphasis in missions in general. Um, and you see this mission agency after mission agency that this is something that's talked about. We encourage all of our missionaries to have an exit strategy. Uh, one of the uh, fluid things of that, though, is how do you determine that uh, exit strategy? And so we try to determine that biblically. God determines that ultimately um, and providentially. But there are many of the younger generation that are coming in with a 10-year timeline. We're going to do this for 10 years. We're going to do this for five years. We're going to do this for two years. Uh, so it's not based as much on what can be accomplished or on the Lord's providential timing, but it's more just a, a human plan. And we see this reflected in culture, don't we? In the workforce, uh, the older generation would stay in a, in a job and white-knuckle it, as Chris said, for you know, 30, 40 years and, and retire from that. And the younger generation is, is uh, quick to move on. And there's some good and bad in that, right? Some of that is we have opportunities for advancement. We want to grow our craft and our skill, and we want to develop and and have better opportunities and uh, grow and be more useful. Some of that is also uh, quick discontentedness, uh, quick dissatisfaction. and uh, uh, so, so there's some good and bad, and you just got to wade through those things. So practically speaking, how do we change that in our churches? What, what advice would you give these men who are in their churches and trying to cultivate that view of missions? This, this is just my story. Um, I was a church planter for 15 years. We would support missionaries, you know, with a tithe of our budget, something like that. But I wasn't, my heart wasn't beating for missions. I was busy just doing what I was called to do. And um, kind of a divine conspiracy, God just started impressing on me through books I was reading, preaching Acts, preaching Jonah. Just missions is the job of every Christian, um, not a couple commandos. I, I joke, I keep referring to poor Paul, but there were times I, I was Paul's pastor in Atlanta and I would refer to him, I'd say, you know, you people think he's Clark Kent. He's Superman. But, <laughs> but that's probably not helpful because if we create the idea that missionaries are super Christians, it actually can have a negative effect. You know, God's using just normal people. And when my heart just got kind of lit up for missions, uh, the Lord used BMW, my time on the board, if a, if a pastor is passionate about it, the church can be passionate about it. You know, so I'm, I'm preaching missions often because it comes up in the text often. I'm praying for our church. Lord of the harvest, send forth labors, not generally, send forth labors from this church. And, uh, you know, I'd be tempted to, pre, to, to pray that, um, you know, for this particular deacon. Send him somewhere. But uh, <laughs> I resisted the urge. But eventually, the, I think the pastor's passion kind of catches on. And yeah. a big impediment to mission is, uh, missions is there's a lot of pastors that are very possessive of their people. You know, I compare a lot of churches to the Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. And, um, you know, the people that we've sent to the mission field are some of our best. We need those people. But not as much as Indonesia needs those people, or South Africa needs those people, or Nepal needs those people. So I, I think it starts with a pastor just getting a vision. And um, I, I'm talking too much, but I compare it to parenting. 
if I say I'm such a great dad, my kids are going to live in my basement when they're 40. You know, I'm such a great dad, they'll never leave. You would think that is twisted. <laughs> a great dad should be sending them out. Well, a, a great church shouldn't just be collecting people. It should be equipping and then identifying and deploying and actually having conversations, not just waiting for them to come to you, but maybe go to them and say, God's hand is on your life. He's using you. You're a gifted teacher. And have you ever considered the Lord might use you in a different place? And how could I help you get there? Um, pastors need to be more generous that way and um, have a kingdom mindset, not just your you know, little empire. And I, to me, I think that is the, the striking point. That's the key. You're, if you're excited about missions, then, then the entire church is going to kind of pick up on that. Um, if you're very possessive, then, then they'll, you know, they'll get that too. The Southern Baptists did a survey and they said 88% of their churches have never sent a missionary. And they branded themselves as a missionary-minded denomination. Uh, and then I got to thinking about non-denominational churches, even IFCA churches, and I wonder what the stat is. I don't have them. But I would bet that it's probably similar. Uh, which obviously, I got to think, what, what can we do about it? We, we did a, a series of think tanks around the United States with a group of pastors. We'd get them together and, and say, why, why is this the case? And uh, why are we not sending more missionaries? And, and uh, I kept notes from all, all the pastors said, and, and this book, Detours, came out of that. Uh, basically, I distilled down the ten reasons pastors gave. Now, I'm not criticizing pastors. This is what they said about themselves. So I only have one of these left, but whoever wants to have it, and there's a couple other books here. Uh, that if you want help yourself, uh, they're free. And if you want some, and I don't have one, I'll send them to you. But this basically deals with issues as to why we're not sending. But beyond all of this, it really, I think, boils down to exactly what Chris said, that even if you don't have strategies and systems and anything else, if the pastor wants it to happen, it'll happen. It's really just that simple. This is not complicated stuff. you got to want it to happen. And if the pastor wants it to happen, it's probably going to happen. And thus, that's why I argue so strongly that as pastors, you've got to get to the field because you're going to get infected when you get on the field in a number of ways. But hopefully for... You'll come back with stomach bugs and everything else. um, You'll come back infected with a passion for for that field. And uh, just like Chris said, it happened to him. Uh, it's, It's cooking. So... A major initiative of BMW right now is, you know, we're trying to recruit at colleges and that kind of thing, but we're really wanting to equip churches to get a vision for this. Success is not just collecting more people, it's sending people. And you can you can develop that culture. We, we would have a class of guys or just a meeting we called Aspire for guys. They're in a normal job, but they have aspirations to ministry. We'd get together, talk about it, pray together. So BMW is really highlighting that more than just recruiting at colleges, churches send missionaries. Uh, so BMW needs to help churches to develop and send missionaries. And that's kind of a major focus, that, uh, especially after Paul's uh, leadership with the book senders. So if we can help you that way, you know, there are some practical steps you can take to, to start that work. And then, of course, God's the one that has to do it, you know. Sending is beyond our pay grade, but we can agitate a little bit. We can mess with people, plant seeds. There's some things modeled in Scripture that I find really helpful. Um, When Paul charged Titus to appoint elders in every city, um, that's uh, missiological in nature. And so I think pastors as missiologists in their churches, to be able to um, uh, spearhead 
strategic development, and, and that is global, ultimately, right? Uh, and so I think leading that charge, as has already been said, I think you also see, though, um, examples throughout Acts. Paul in inviting Silas, Paul inviting Timothy, you see Barnabas inviting John Mark. You see these examples of an invitation from a missionary. And uh, I, I think, how can we get missionaries? Missionaries make the best recruiters oftentimes. So how can we facilitate as pastors, as church leaders, ministry leaders, opportunities for missionaries to spend time with people, to extend those invitations? That's a, that's a, a proven model that God has used historically, biblically, uh, and, and that's a common testimony that we see in missionaries today, being an instrumental component of how God has directed them into global cross-cultural mission. I would just add that in addition to the pastors going, your assistant pastors, your yeah. other leaders, they need to be going as well. Most missionaries are, are out there because they had some time they were in the field and they really, um, you know, just saw uh, God open their eyes and they saw opportunity and they decided to go back. I mean, that's what happened to me. And, uh, you know, Jay was more than happy, my pastor, my senior pastor over here, to, to, to send me out there and that's where I went. So... Um, also just thinking who else can you send or, or take along with you as you go. And we take pastors as next missionary candidates as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, Robert, could I do some crass advertising? Just go for it. <laughs> uh, this November, um, we're taking a group of pastors to Indonesia. If you've not traveled overseas, you want sort of a ready-made one, we can take you to the trip. This is a trip to the unholy land. You've gone to the holy land, now do the unholy land. And for a week, we'll show you uh, needs and opportunities, and it'll it'll be like earning a degree in missiology just for spending a week there on the field. So if you're interested, talk to me. And uh, this November, we're planning to, to do that. And it's primarily aimed at helping pastors to get there so you'll catch the vision. And there's enough trips that November does a word. There's probably ongoing ones that they could Absolutely. jump on at some point. And... Before I jump into the next thing, let me encourage all of you with some of what was said. First off, some of us are probably thinking, I don't have the time. Maybe that's true. Send people in your church. It doesn't have to be you doing the work. You've got elders, you've got deacons, you've got just missions people. Maybe sending them to the field to capture a vision. And you can hand that off to them. Encourage you further even. I'm excited because I can look around this room and know some of you guys have either been sent out by your church years ago to plant, or some of you are actively doing that. And that's a great thing. You don't need a large church. One of the things that drew us to our church, we're stable at 65 people right now. And I can brag about this because this wasn't my doing. We came there because in the last 20 years, they've sent out 10 to 15 people. Mm -hmm. Um, In various contexts, various ways. I think the smaller churches are sending out more missionaries. I think I learned that from Paul even as we talked about some stuff. So be encouraged by that. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be a large church. God's at work in your church. Yeah. Um, I want to shift gears going from changing missionaries to just a changing world. And I think we have to hit this. Just by the nature of what things are going on, we have to hit this geopolitical situation. For the fun of it, I've put a, a map up there that's just showing you conflicts. Granted, that could be anything. I, on here you see Brazil, and the only thing they have going on is just presidential elections. Nothing that really impacts us. Other things aren't on there that definitely impact missions. China is an example. Our relationships with other, the U.S. relationships with other nations. COVID obviously hit things. We have one person on here who's been off the field for a couple of years just because of COVID. We have another, you just heard, heard Kevin's story about having to leave Russia because of the geopolitical situation. 
And so I put this up here as a general reference, not as, oh, what does this mean? Um, And so I want to talk about this. When we look at the world around us and what's going on, how do we prepare ourselves? And in one sense, we can't be prepared. But how do we approach missions in light of what is going on in a constantly changing world? It's a great question, Robert, <clears throat> and I'm glad you brought this up. And I, I think um, I want—I don't want to lose sight of this too. I think we had mentioned possibly um, saving some time at the last ten minutes or so. If there's questions from the room to make, you know, see if we can answer anything or shed light on anything. Um, but a quick thought: I—I um, I really believe in studying the world geopolitically. I believe we need to stay connected to that. I think there's a scriptural basis for it. I think there's a practical basis for it. I will also say, having said that and endorsing that fully, there is a way to simplify this problem. And um, I'll say this. Regardless of what's happening around the world, if you look at the Acts 1-8 model of missions, the first three steps of the Great Commission are very close to your home church. Uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria are all pretty close. And, And to kind of tie off what we talked to and then link it to this, missions is done ultimately, generally speaking, one-to-one. And so regardless of what's happening in the world, this is a chance for us to recalibrate what missions is. Because there's been a trend the last 25, 30 years in certain parts of evangelicalism that if missions is everything, the missions is nothing. And missions is at the heart. It's communicating that Jesus Christ is a savior of the world. He died, he rose again, and he can save you from your sins, death and hell, and redeem you, and change your life and the life of your household if you'll put your faith and trust in him. And we have a hopeless world. That's what I love about this map, is that hopelessness and brokenness are terrible. However, here's another weird stat. The human race, as best we understand it, has never had it so good. We've never lived longer. We've never eaten better. We've never had better medical care. We've actually never had less war and violence than we have today. And yet everyone's walking around in complete brokenness and hopelessness. Everything's bad. Well, because we adjust our sin problem to the environment around us. So no matter how good it gets or how bad it gets, environmentally around us, it's still going to be the gospel. And the gospel is still going to be communicated by someone sharing it. So I would kind of speak into this side of this new slide by linking it to the last one and saying, if we don't send missionaries who have experience in leading someone in their community to faith in Jesus Christ, getting them down to the front of the church, getting them baptized, and getting them discipled, why would we expect them to be able to go in this kind of crisis environment to learn another language, live cross-culturally, and figure out how to do that. And I will tell you, and this is a problem across every mission agency, every mission executive I've talked to, I've talked to Paul about this, this, and I think there's a variety of reasons for it, but this is happening to every mission agency. We are getting people coming to us who don't know how to do that or don't know how to do that well. And so one thing we're realizing, just like in the sense the corporate world is realizing they have to retrain college graduates on how to actually do the job, we're we're realizing and we're kind of emphasizing going forward a renewed evangelism component to our training of how do you win a soul to Christ? 
because we somewhere lost that. And yet that's what we're sending people to do. So I'm going to take it back to the simple and say, regardless of where you are, it's telling the old, old story. So it's just to throw that out there. <laughs> I'm going to zero in on something that Chris said. Chris hit the emphasis of we need to be training nationals. How does that relate to this, specifically as those of us who hold U.S. passports can't get into certain places now? I see a lot of head shaking, but nobody answered. <laughs> um, I've mentioned some is very organized, you know, NCCGS. How many, how many guys, uh, Chuck, Paul, how many, how many guys are you training now with all of the branches of NTCGS? 200. All right, so here they are, you know, especially in the Middle East, training 200 people that were born there that are getting ready to go out and church plant. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend in India, and, um, you know, India is such a vast place. Um, and a church planter going there is great, but, but this man born there, it has a ministry where they're training um, Indians to reach Indians. And, you know, ha- there's some structure to that, that a first-term missionary is just learning culture and language, and how do you get from there to a, you know, something that big? It, it might not be that big, but the idea that you're trying to, you're trying to make yourself expendable. And it doesn't have to be through a seminary. It could be just by, by living with these people, giving them chances to preach, um, we have a lady that we supported in Ghana. She went, um, Nancy Ball, went as a female, and because of our ecclesiology, she couldn't pastor. Um, 30, 40 years later, I went to Ghana, visited a dozen churches, met probably 50, 60 pastors that God used her and her, and her uh, teammate to raise up. Had she been male, she might have planted one church and stayed there. And you know, I can't trust these people; they're not they're not ready. Because she's female, she had to get ministry done through people that she was training. So she's teaching children literacy. These children grow up to learn the Bible, and they just kept growing. And I didn't meet a single white person, a single American. And that's a great model, you know. I, I want to tell men. Pretend you're a woman. In 2022, that's probably bad advice. <laughs> Pretend you have to get mission work done through other people. You know, if you couldn't pass through the church, what would you do? And um, I think that mindset, that aggressive indigenous church planting, you know, you're not succeeding unless you are expendable. And um, by God's grace, that shouldn't take 30 years. Um, so I think part of that is just keep teaching that and emphasizing it for missionaries and really getting behind people that are training nationals so well. Uh, it's happening a lot of places. My brother Dan is a missionary in Brazil, now with a Brazil Gospel Fellowship Mission. And uh, I was down there last year, and there's a bunch of Brazilians that are getting doctoral degrees to train Brazilians. You know, it, it happens. Yeah. But it happens on purpose. You know, that just kind of get out of the way and... We we are expendable, you know. Two times I've pastored a church, and uh, the Lord's moved me somewhere else. Both times, the uh, next pastor came from within. Both times he got ninety eight percent vote, which I feel was too high. Honestly, <laughs> um, if I hadn't voted no, it would have been. <laughs> you know, but it, it's still that same idea that if if we leave and the place implodes, that's yeah. failure, not success. And missionaries need to embrace that even more, I think, than pastors. 
Amen. Every head bowed, every eye closed. <laughs> Sorry. I followed that question up with what Andrew said because I think you should see something very important there. Yeah. Missions isn't all us, and yet we need to be influencing our church, but it's also not all others. You got to have all of us working together, which I think is crucial here. We were in we were in Ukraine in April. Chris went with us. Um, we had a group of I think seven of us, and we worked with um, our missionaries in Berlin, um, the Willoughby family, and took um, took some aid and. Um, relief into Ukraine. We went into Lviv and drove through Poland. Um, so it was a 36-hour um, crazy trip. Uh, so uh, one of the one of the cool things, and I think this is what we're illustrating in practice on the journey. If you're if you're going to train leaders or you're planting a church or whatever aspect of missions you're involved with, we had a we had a driver who was Ukrainian, and he got witness to for hours. You know, it's it's that, and, and I'm just telling you. Uh, that we see far too little of that intentional evangelism on the journey, that we're teaching others to do something that we have to be doing. And we have to be, again, constantly renewing that vision, that, that zeal in ourselves to say, yes, we want to get the indigenous, the locals doing it, but then we also have to model it. And it's not just so they'll see. It's also because we're Christians, and we're on a mission, and we can't let the industry of mission get in the way of our own personal discipleship, our own personal walk, and our own personal responsibility to evangelize those who God brings in our way and that we encounter. So I think I think there's a synthesis between what we're saying here, and I hope you hope you recognize that, guys. If I can hit this from a different angle, um, so I serve as the area leader for the Asia Pacific and uh, Russia down to New Zealand and a lot of places in between. Uh, our ministry was also church planning in southwestern China. And uh, in mainland, we had uh, two church plants that we worked with in particular. In particular, um, There are just some interesting shifts happening uh, that affect a lot of different spheres of, of how we do ministry. Uh, there was a lot of emphasis pre-COVID on how do you get to some of these hard-to-reach countries. Uh, 1040 window missions, those countries are difficult for a reason. Not only are they some of the hardest languages in the world, uh, but they're some of the most difficult places to get into, nor are you wanted or welcomed in those places. Uh, so there's a lot of time spent. And so if a missionary approaches us with a burden for going to a place, at BMW we really try to come alongside them uh, to assist them in every way that we can, even surveying with them so that we can help them find those ways in. But now that landscape has changed with geopolitical tensions. And so this is a, this is a real trend. If you follow a lot of um, different online articles, you'll see there's a lot of talk about remote ministry, uh, even questions being posed. Is traditional historical missions the need anymore because we can do so much remotely? I think all of us have probably learned in this shift that distant ministry is deficient ministry. Not that it doesn't have value. I don't mean to say that it doesn't have value. It has a place. It has a very instrumental role, and I think all of us have that takeaway as well, right? Uh, but there are, there are things that are lacking with not being there in person. Uh, so there's a role that we can do uh, remotely through virtual means and things like that. Uh, but more than ever, I think we need people who are willing to be creative and willing to find every avenue just to, to getting there. Um, and that's a, that's a challenge. Um, and so my encouragement is... Uh, be gracious with people. This is a, a very fluid process. It's not clear-cut. There's not a manual written on taking these steps. If you have missionaries that are displaced that are wanting to get back to their country, uh, I know I'm a bit partial saying this because I'm in that boat, but if I can encourage you as pastors, 
continue to be patient with them. Uh, they are wanting to get back. Asia Pacific has been one of the most closed regions in the world. It's starting to open up within just the last couple months where travel is opening up again. Uh, and I expect it to open up. That's that's uh, my personal conjecture on the matter. <laughs> yeah, so. That's a great word, Josh. It was uh, 30 years. For the last 30 years, we've enjoyed the bonus of the end of the Cold War. We had a Cold War world, a bipolar world, where um, half the world was closed. It was behind the Iron Curtain, behind the, the Chinese wall, you know, the, the Maoist regime. And, it was, and, and then in the late 80s, early 90s, we saw an unprecedented explosion of freedom of travel, freedom of movement, uh, transfer of money, um, transfer of capital, resources, ideas, moved across the world in an unprecedented, breathtakingly fast way. And now it looks like, and I think cutting-edge thinkers are saying, we may be losing that bonus. And did the church get in there? We did. We were in there. We, we went a lot of places and we went fast. And it was the biggest movement of people from North America to the rest of the world in the history of the church. Um, you cannot find a church hardly anywhere that didn't take a mission trip to the somewhere. And, and that, that did not happen before. And now it's happened. Now what's happening in the 2020s and the 2030s? It looks like in some ways God is bringing us back to some things that we've got to focus on in new ways while not, doing, while not losing what Josh just said. We've got to keep going and supporting, but it's going to be creative. It's not going to be easy anymore. And I really like the appeal, the appeal to pastors to be patient with our missionaries because they're going through some pretty traumatic stuff. Their heart was in a place. They got ripped out of that place not by choice, and now what do we do with what God's doing? Well, God is reassigning and recalibrating, and just like he did with the Jerusalem church, we're going to figure it out, and we're figuring it out actively. We have some fields that a missionary can't go and get like a religious worker visa. Um, Sweden, we've had to pull somebody out, because I, I think um, one thing that I think is changing in the globalization of just how the, how the world is functioning if somebody's training for missions, you know, may, maybe they're a nursing major and they want to, a student wants to change their major to missions. Like, no, 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 don't, don't change your major. Get your missions, you know, get your nursing training and degree, and then there may be a lot of doors open to you that wouldn't be open to me. Yep. Uh, business people, we have people in our church, their company, they, they work for a company that is, um, is operated from Germany or Switzerland, and, and they could move to Germany, keep their job, not have to raise support, and, and then go help missionaries. So um, I do think part of that tent making, um, tent making can get in the way of disciple making, yeah. but in the new world it can also be a place where they get access to places normal missionaries can't go. Uh, so you have a mashup of being a good worker and a great commission worker. And it may be the only access. Might be the only correct. one. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Some of our best teammates in Russia were engineers that worked for oil companies. And uh, they go all over the world. They spend about 20 years of their life just going to all kinds of different places, places we can't go. And all of them have stories of connecting with national churches and, and helping them. That's the awesome. We talk to. So, you know, awesome. I can even use engineers. <laughs> Accountants, I'm not so sure, but <laughs> it's a tethering taking place. It's like you're you're pulling uh, Christian Christians who are being disciple makers in the secular workplace, and then tethering them with career missionaries. And at BMW, we're really, really working through how to make that part of our overall mission strategy. So, yeah, it's good. 
I'll add real quickly to that as I draw this to a close. As we've talked about, how do you reach them? Some of you guys are in larger cities. Los Angeles, Seattle area is represented here in itself. Um, San Francisco area and all of that. You've got students coming to college campuses there. I know one campus that had 50 different nations represented. Some of those closed nations. If you can reach out to them and make disciples and send them back to their home country, you've just reached that from your local church. That's just another option. And you have 20 and 30 year olds that have wanderlust. My kids have been so many more countries than I I would have been at their age. Mm -hmm. Everybody's traveling and they might have a sense of adventure. I would love to go work in Europe or Asia. And um, and you could leverage that for missions as well. I had hoped to hit a little bit more, and Josh hit this some of, you know, supporting your missionaries. As we talk about some that are just, they're being brought back home because of the geopolitical situation. I was hoping we'd hit more of, well, how do you support them? I would urge you guys to go talk to the two of them, Josh and Kevin, and, and just learn more about that aspect of it because it can be a traumatic experience, as, as Andrew said. Mm. We have a couple minutes left. I do want to make sure, unless you're sitting in this front row, do you have any questions? <laughs> <laughs> I would just, I would just uh, also encourage <clears throat> the support of indigenous missionaries. The, uh, the majority of our church planners are indigenous leaders that we have reached over the years. So the majority of our church planners and, and leaders that are leading churches in, particularly in Mexico, and yeah. and um, are, are leading their own ministries now, and they want to go to the world. So we have we have Mexicans now that are in, in Central Asia, uh, in Northern India, uh, in some of those regions. But the struggle that, that, and we're working with some couples to come out of Cuba, who of course know Russian as well as uh, Spanish, and getting them out of Cuba to, to train with several of our Mexicans missionaries, church planners in Mexico to train them for going to the mission field. But the challenge there is getting support for them. So one of the things that I think is really important for for pastors and churches to consider uh, supporting indigenous missionaries, because it's hard for them to to do the the missionary trail support raising process. uh, But but our agency, I know there's other agencies. Um, If you could could catch a vision to support those missionaries. And our couples out of Cuba, they said you know, send us to the hardest places because we know what it's like to suffer. They just don't have any money. So. I'm really glad you said that. So, I'm really glad so. you said that. Um, the, the challenge in what you're describing is it's it's often been seen as a national or domestic. We support the American or we support the national. And I've talked to a lot of pastors. The issue has been how do we know who to support mm-hmm. on the national side? We, we've been thinking through this, and, and so I'm happy to say we're we're heavily considering in the very near term launching biblical ministries worldwide, South Africa. We have a great base of missionaries and a long history in South Africa. And the idea would be to start this model and see how we can replicate it around the world. We're actively thinking this. How do we get the South African church that's growing, how do we get the South African church to start resourcing and sending its own missionaries intentionally at the support level that they can afford rather than sending the domestic or the national missionary back to the North American base for support. Can we get the South African church to become a net sender from its own resources? And, um, and we're working, and, uh, and if, if 
we do launch that, you you may be looking at the first general director here of BMW South Africa <laughs> sitting on my left. So, uh, uh, but you know, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> I would, I would say, adding on to both of these, there, yeah. there is a, a unique element, and I can't take any credit, but our ministry has grown exponentially, not because of something that I've done, but because our early missionaries, their primary focus was on discipleship. You know, yeah. um, I w I've been with another agency, too, and, and worked with a lot of agencies, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of, we're developing national leadership, but it, it wasn't evident, you know. And you had guys that were writing prayer letters that I can't come home on furlough because I don't have anybody to replace me. And I think, I can't even believe that, you know. But we're starting to see our missionaries. So with this year we opened up Spain uh, from a missionary from Argentina. Okay. Um, our director in Pakistan, who, by the way, all of these people were discipled from people before my, my leadership there. Uh, our director in Pakistan doesn't have any problem whatsoever going into Iran. I don't know how many people in here have a missionary in Iran, all right? But, you know, we're talking about problems of some places where people are being kicked out. It's not a problem for many of the nationalities that we're training, we're discipling. And so sometimes we get a little ethnocentric, you know, about if we're not there, if we're not sending them, this is the only way. And so, you know, what you guys are talking about doing, uh, you know, uh, I commend you. That's a great idea. And, of course, UIM does it, yep. Source of Light does it, and... I, I really believe if we, if we are going to address the issue of the needs in the changing world, we have to stop thinking it's going to be initiated by us. You had something, and then I'll close. Yeah, and I'll, I'll sit here for a second and let Robert sweat for a second to wonder what I'm going to have. <laughs> no, I, I, you mentioned, um, Paul, you mentioned the SBC, and as I'm going to out myself a little bit as a somewhat of an insider being from, from the camp, I, I, I don't find that... that um, that percentage shocking at all. In fact, it's probably much higher than that that aren't actually sending out missionaries. And to kind of piggyback on what um, what Chris was saying, I think a lot of that is, is simply because we've become that weird dad that has been comfortable just keeping our kids in the basement, you know, and not not doing that. So as an encouragement, one of the things that I would I would say because I think one of the issues for that problem is we've sent we just send money out to it and we've we've scratched that missional itch by just by just saying okay yeah we'll just we'll just send some money to to the organization and let them handle it um, as an encouragement I would say don't uh, yes they they need that support well we need to be sending people out and that's one of the failures that that I, that I agree with you 100 percent that that SBC churches and I think a lot of churches have this were not being that good parent. That, that struck me. I wrote that down. I, I, I put that in there. Um, it's sending people out, making sure that it's not just, we're not just paying lip service and money service. We're not just doing that to the mission field. We're actually equipping people to be missional. And so thank you for that. And I know you're wanting to close, but if I can add, I appreciate that. Guys, we're we're here, uh, and I think you know the, the testimony and reputation of BMW, but we are here before serving missionaries, we serve local churches to send their missionaries. We believe local churches are, are the institution that God has designed for the sending of the missionary. And if we can be of service to you, 
I, I think I can speak for all of these men, really. We would be glad to fly out and meet you and, and enjoy a meal, to speak to your leadership team, to share in your churches. We have resources, and we'd love to collaborate with you. Ministry leaders, we know some great organizations, and we love to network and collaborate together. And that's and, the best uh, book. This is a fantastic <laughs> book to work through. Paul's got some great resources. The mission yeah. does as well. So, um, uh, But anyway, I just want to extend that invitation to you. We, we really have a desire to serve you guys, and, and we've got some great resources to tap into. That was my closing. Oh, was it? No, you're great. I'm glad somebody else said it. Um, there is contact information up there. I would say get together with these guys. Um, I have cards here. If you have questions, I can get you, give you my information. We'll make connection, and I'll connect you to the right person. I'm going to call out somebody else real quick before we close, too, and that's um, Kevin's pastor, Jay. And the reason I call him out is because they are sending out, and if you want some experience or some some knowledge there on how they do that from your perspective, talk to Jay. Because um, they've sent, is it four in the last, like four units in the last so many years? It's quite a bit. And they're, I point to them quite a, often. Fine example. Um, let me go ahead and close in prayer then. Um, I appreciate you guys taking the time and I hope this was helpful. Um, I definitely enjoyed the conversation myself. So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this time. Father, we thank you for the work you're doing around the world. And indeed, we see it evident. And more than anything, we just consider it or should consider it a great privilege to be of service to you in this way, Lord. Thank you for, for allowing us to be part of your plan in that role, Lord. Father, I pray as we now go about the rest of this day, may we not forget, first off, pointing to you, but may we not also forget the principles that we've talked about here, Lord. May we dwell upon them. May we think about how we can apply them in our current situations, Lord, so that we may indeed fulfill the great commission that you've commanded to us, Lord. And so, Father, we, we thank you for this time. I ask for your blessing upon each of those represented here today. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Amen. 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 Thank you for your answers. Uh, Were you at the uh, incursion? Yeah, I was. I've been here.